Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And as most of you know, every day I'm coming across somebody more interesting and more fascinating with some amazing story that reaches me and I have to share. And luckily for me, I got uh, approached by this guest that I have on today, Carlene Montez de Oca, and she reached out to me, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, and was so excited to share her story with me and thought I should be excited to share her story with you, which I am. So uh, thanks for being here. And we're going to dive way into a very fascinating story that relates to adoption betrayal, surprises, disappointment, hope, family, ancestors, and more. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I think that introduction pretty much covered it all. (laughs) (laughs) And then covered nothing at all, right? It's everything and nothing. That's what I tell people, especially people I work with. When it comes to writing, it all means something and it all means nothing. And so when we work from that place, it's good. We can expect everything. So you have a book that came out called uh, Junkyard Girl. And this was a story, a book that you wrote that weaves together stories of your present day narrative and sort of your past looking back upon this discovery, which you didn't find out until you were 57 years old, that you were adopted. So tell me about that is, I had a friend who was adopted and I said, yeah, I'm going to have this really interesting guest on. She didn't find out she was adopted till she was 57. And he's like, well, was she happy about it? I'm like, no, (laughs) it was complicated. There were family and relatives who knew and nobody told her. So tell me what you got. Well, yes. I mean, basically I'll, I'll tell you how it all started was uh, I was on Facebook 
And I got this little, I'm sorry, I was just writing. And then a Facebook message popped up. And it was from some guy who had friended me about a week before. And his comment, you look an awful lot like my wife. And I thought, God, what a flirt. And so I ignored him. But then he kept sending me little messages. And finally, he sent me a picture of a woman. And he said, don't you think, don't you think you look like her? And I kind of, being my sarcastic self, said, I think your wife and I shop for glasses at the same store. Other than that, I don't really see a resemblance. And his response to me was, well, ancestry DNA says different. And I was like, whoa, I, I had taken a DNA test and I had gotten the results about a week before, but I was so busy doing other things that I sort of looked at it and then kind of tossed it aside and didn't pay attention. If I had paid attention and looked at the little part that said centimorgans, that which that relates to how connected you are to somebody else, I would have seen this woman's name, a woman named Martha, and seen that she was potentially a half sibling. Well, this was this guy's wife. And so, but at the time I didn't know, I just thought, oh, okay. And he, his wife reached out to me and she was very nice. She didn't have any idea about anything. She was just surprised how close we were related genetically on this test. And uh, so I reached out to my siblings because she was looking for family. And I thought, well, I have 63 first cousins. I have a massive family. I know who I am. I know where I come from. Gee, this woman doesn't have any family. Maybe somebody in my family knows something. So I did reach out to my siblings and they were, and my parents had died already. And my siblings were like, no, no, we don't know anything. We don't know. But a few weeks later, my sister, my adoptive sister, who I didn't know was my adoptive sister, came out to Santa Fe. And it was one of those Santa Fe days where the snow was going sideways because it was blowing so hard. And uh, she came in and pretty much started crying from the get-go, pulled out these pages and said, I'm sorry, something big has happened in our family and I have to tell you about it. She started to read and about a couple of lines down, she said, Carlene, you're adopted. And that's when my world turned upside down. I think I would suffocate. I think I would, I mean, there's so many things that would come into a moment, a single moment of identity and trust and feeling disoriented and questions and sadness and weirdness. And like, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine, but I can imagine that everything would crystallize in one moment. That would be hard to put into words. Well, actually, that's an interesting thing you brought up because that's exactly what happened. I mean, I actually had, um, it's funny, people ask me about the emotional reaction, but it's shock is the first thing. So you, your emotions aren't, at least mine were not in front of me. I was in shock. And what that felt like was a wrecking ball hitting me and just hitting my core so hard that in that moment, I felt part of me was feeling like, gosh, I'm kind of floating around because I feel disconnected and discombobulated because yeah, my identity had just been severed from what I knew to always be true. Well, and, and that's all you have. I mean, <laughs> we think about, we have the mental identity of what we understand and know. And that's the thing that kind of gets us through life. We have the cognition of who we are. I mean, the spiritual element of who we are, the essence of who we are, the soul, whatever you want to call it, is the ongoing exploration, right? Who am I? But Counting on the intellectualized version of that identity is the reason why we can go on that spiritual 
identity. That's right. Because we have that foundation in place. Right. Everything has built on top of that. So in some ways, I mean, everything was knocked out from under me. And so initially, I'll just tell you, I had a, the strangest physical reaction. I stopped being able to really hear what was going on. I could see my sister's lips moving and I could sort of hear her. I like she was, Yeah, somewhere like in the distance somewhere. But I was struggling to hear the words that were coming out of her mouth that she was reading. And uh, then when that, you know, after a, a day of that settling down a bit, then that's when the emotional stuff started to happen. And, you know, my husband said to me, I'm not much of a crier. I don't, I'm not, I, I kind of don't always go there. But he, I was crying all the time. I was tying my shoes and crying. I was like washing the dishes and crying. And my husband was, says, I've never seen you cry like this before. And I'd say to him, well, I don't even know what I'm crying about. I just felt this intense emotion just moving through me. Well, what's interesting is I, I believe this is my philosophical belief. It's what I teach. And um, that. As a human being, our experience comes down to only two things, grief or love. And how we integrate into the world is contingent upon where we are in relation to one or the other or both. Um, and I would feel like from what you're describing that that is a tidal wave of grief upon a tidal wave of grief, upon a tidal wave of grief that you can't even catch your breath because so much of what you knew is lost instantly. Absolutely. You've described it beautifully. And that was what was happening. It was also, I mean, I feel like I'm somebody who has worked on their personal development and spiritual well-being and those things. But this is one of those moments, like I said, it's a bit of a wrecking ball that just hit you suddenly and you're in shock and you're trying to make some sense of it. But, um, you know, in my, my first feeling was, you know, after that was, I just need to go to sleep. I just need to go to sleep. So the world calms down because it's just too much. And I found myself kind of just doing for two weeks, not sort of knowing what to do, because it was just, as you say, tidal wave after tidal wave of emotion. And finally, so I was like, questions. what's that? So many questions. So many questions. So I think two weeks went by and I finally said, okay, I've got to get it together here because I can't keep going like this. It's so intense. And that's when I had to kind of pull out all of my little, um, you know, life has given me a lot of tools to, you know, when things happen, you know, I, I've built my little toolbox of things and I started pulling them out going, okay, what has helped me in the past? What has helped me? And what has helped me in the past was you've got to feel everything that's happening. You've got to feel it in order to release it. So yeah. you can't like just put it aside somewhere and hope it's going to go away because it doesn't, or it does. And then it comes back harder, stronger, and just really slaps you in the face. So I had to start with that and just go, okay, whatever is coming, let's just feel it. And as you say, all those things, grief was at the root of it. I thought, you know, oddly, I didn't feel as angry as I thought I would. You know, I actually didn't really feel a lot of that. I felt incredible disappointment that my siblings had not confided in me this massive secret. I felt loss. I felt sadness. And at the bottom of the well was grief. How 
Do you imagine your siblings could keep a secret like that all those years? It is the power that my parents had on my parents. My mother and father were immigrants from Mexico. They were the matriarch and patriarch of a very large extended family. I mean, my father, basically, since he was 12 years old, took care of his siblings when his father died. And so they were, everybody held them in extreme, you know, 63 first cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody looked to them as kind of the heads of our extended family. So when the story went, what I was told and I discovered later was that my adoptive mother, I grew up in Southern California, and one day my adoptive mother went to go see a friend of hers, and when she was knocking on the door, she could hear a lady crying in the back of the house somewhere, and when her friend came to the door, she said, hey, who's that lady out here who's crying? Do you know her? And she said, yes, that's my cousin. She's here from Chicago. She's not married. She has two kids already. And she's got another one on the way and she wants me to help her get an abortion and I'm not going to help her. Now, this is 1961 when abortion was illegal everywhere. So basically my adoptive mother, my parents did not have much money. They were, you know, they had already children of their own. They had this big family they were taking care of. That was an extended family. And they took this absolute stranger who was pregnant and her two children to live with them for six months until I was born. And they told this woman, we will adopt your child. We'll take the child. And they gave her some money to go back on the Greyhound with her children back to Chicago. So she took the kids aside, my two older brothers and sister, and said, this is your new sister. She's adopted. But if people know this, they will try to hurt her because there was a stigma around kids out of wedlock then. So, And they'll try to hurt her. So you're never to tell her this. And I believe my parents meant absolutely, they meant well. Um, they were also just from another country and then they were immigrants. They were older. They Adoption was a much in Mexico. They had seen what children out of wedlock went through. And here in the United States, it wasn't extremely, you know, it, it's not like it is now that it doesn't matter as much. So um, my siblings did what they always did. We all, they listened to my parents, you know, they did what my parents said. Um, don't, I don't totally understand. It wouldn't be what I would do, especially after my parents died. You know, I would, I'm sure I'm the kind of person who would say, Hey, I need to talk to you. So you they, know, and, they died before you knew that you knew. Yes. So it was up to my siblings. And so I'll, I'll say my biggest disappointment was with them not telling me. Have you had any conversations with them, even though they've passed on of the things you want to ask or tell them? I mean, I would be like, I don't know. So many things, so many things. I mean, it's that I'm not somebody who likes to regret. I mean, I really try to just go, I have no regrets, but gosh, I mean, I really feel like that would be a conversation I would love to have with both of them. And mostly because I believe that once maybe I was getting older, my parents were extremely overprotective. And I always wondered, why are they so overprotective? And they were that way up until I, they passed away. And I would always say to them, I don't understand why you're this way with me. And they would, all, they would never explain it. And I think they always thought somehow I was going to get hurt by this information. Something was going to affect me. And so therefore, I think now part of me just wants to reassure them that they are 
they will always be my parents, regardless of the issues that we had when I was growing up, you know, because we had a bit of a, uh, we had a bit of a fraught relationship, especially my mother and I, but I still love my parents. And, but it, it was so important for me to know the truth of everything. And I guess I would want those conversations with them, with both, especially my mother. And then how did it go with your biological mother? Right. Yeah, that was a bit of a, that's still so surreal to me. I discovered this all started happening so quickly, one thing after the other. It's like the floodgates opened because about, I had to reach out to this woman who ended up being my half-sister about a week after I learned that I was who she was and she didn't know. And, you know, I, I don't think I was quite ready to face her, but she was so excited. And I was like, oh my God, this is so much, but she was so happy to have a sister. And then we, and I asked her is what about our birth mother? What do you think? And she said, well, I've been estranged from her for 20 years because, you know, she was mentally ill and she just didn't want to have anything to do with her children that she did have. And so, but what we come to find out about two weeks later is that my birth mother was alive and in a state hospital in Chicago on hospice. And so I'm like, so I thought, gosh, if it, so this Martha said to me, do you want to come meet her? And so three days later, this is only like a couple of weeks after I find out I'm adopted. So three days later, we fly to Chicago and I meet her and she is not only mentally ill, she has dementia. And so she doesn't even know who Martha is and she's never going to know who I am. But the oddest thing was when I looked at her, the moment they were pushing around in a wheelchair, I was in denial. I'm like, that can't be my mother. We don't even look alike. She looks like an, you know, an Irish elf. I don't, you know, I just, or, or everything was so different. So I'm still kind of confounded as to why I don't feel any connection or did feel any connection to her. But the odd thing was she died like four months later. And I think of all the times in all the world that I found out, I found out right before she passed. Which is amazing. I mean, if, if, if it has to be, I, I don't know what to say. It's the, it's the silver lining, I guess. It's such a cliche, but what are you going to do? It feels like, you know, you may never really know what all that was. Um, do you still have yeah. a relationship with Martha? Yes, we pretty much stay in touch. Uh, she, she very much, I, I mean, I had to say, look, this is sort of different for me because I wasn't looking for family. So I'm, and I'm still in the midst of this whirlwind of things that are happening that I have to take this very slowly. And she was very understanding. She said, of course, of course, we'll take it a day at a time. And we have. And so it has been four years now. And we probably communicate once a month, mostly through text, some phone calls throughout the year. But I'm still getting to know her and probably it's taking longer than it may have been at any other time. And mostly because I felt like I already had my brothers and sisters, that's who they were. So to break that mold a bit and let somebody new, it's still kind of odd to think I have another sister. Yeah, I could see how. Um, and I mean, they talk about people who have been adopted, like twins or whatever, who have been separated through adoption or whatever, and um, they haven't seen each other 
in 30 years, they didn't know they had a brother or twin brother or something. And through genetic testing and it, what happens these days with technology, they get the information and, and they meet and so much of their mannerisms or there are things that even though they were not, you know, it was the old nurture versus nature thing that the nature was so much more prevalent with who they were in the world, even outside of the nurturing environments that they were raised in. And did, was there anything that you looked at her and said, wow, that's just like me or isn't that, or did it feel familiar without having any words or? It, I will say I must be, I, I hear that a lot. Everything you've described, I hear a lot. I'm sure. I didn't feel that way, but also I was a bit traumatized by the whole experience that was already happening. So when I did actually physically meet her, I don't think I was ready to accept anything. I, I was still sort of in denial. I was, I jumped from denial to acceptance in like 24 hours. No, so, and probably still every day since. Yes, it's true. But <laughs> I will say that the more I talk to her, there's two things I'm noticing three. Well, she says three things because we both love animals so much. So I'm a huge animal advocate and, and she, you know, she's all about animals. The number, another thing I notice is she's extremely resilient, probably more than I am, even though I consider myself resilient because they, she and my half brother who died had a really tough time in Chicago with my birth mother. And so I really feel for her, but I also think, wow, she is really resilient and the third thing is we have a real facility of communication between us. Like there's never a time where I feel, I just feel like the conversation just flows very easily. And so I think those three things are things that I have paid attention to recently. Yeah. And that may be it because mm -hmm. the processing of it all may be the life journey or the path that has no tidy bows at the end where everybody is resolved in 22 minutes, like a sick, <laughs> right. It, it doesn't feel like that's this story, but what I love, I guess, is uh, your courage to write into the experience because part of what I teach, I do writing retreats here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I work with people one-on-one -on -one to help them connect to themselves in their own stories. Mm -hmm. Because I think most of the time, 95% of the people I come across who talk about writing usually will tell a story about the story. And that's the way they write it from a very cognitive, mental, intellectualized place where they're reporting on the facts and narrating the story of what happened. But I imagine just based on what you're describing, diving into yourself in the story as an expression, as an experience, as an exploration to make meaning for yourself, because you're not going to get it from your birth mother. You're not going to get it from your bio your adopted parents. You're probably not going to get it from your siblings. You're not going to get it from your half sister. So if you think about all these people that have a piece of your story, none of them can give you the piece that you need. You know, uh, one of the things that I 
feel and it, it for example what they call what the experience I went through is called late discovery adoptees and I see a lot of or I and I have spoken with a lot of late discovery adoptees who are really still struggling after many years when I tell people okay I have this happened four years ago they're like is that all you know who've gone through that because they know right. how hard that experience is I believe that one of the most powerful things I was able to do was to write my story. I had no idea. I mean, I've written books before, but this one was so deep and I, I did such a deep dive and I was like, I wanted to get to the truth, at least my truth yeah. and come out on the other side. So I was as authentic and as honest while trying to be fair to, to the other parties involved about yeah. what I went through. And I believe that that is the thing that really helped me heal. It did. I agree. I mean, I, I, I only agree just because of all the people that I work with that have whatever stories that they have, those that take the time to explore into uh, possibility of unimaginable truth, I guess, because when you're pursuing a, an experience like that um, through writing, most people have expectations around what they think they're going to get out of it and how they're going to approach it for who they're writing for the preconceived audience. Mm -hmm. They're really not looking at the value of getting into their own truth. So when you said that, what was it you discovered from writing that you would say you could articulate as part of your truth? Definitely not the whole thing. What did you discover about your story, your process yourself by going through the writing of the book? So many things. I'm just trying, I'm going to come up with like the first thing that I can think of. I guess I, one of the things that I really discovered was for me, the meaning of family. Uh, You know, this idea that blood is thicker than water, that Actually, they think that came from another saying that it was like the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And what that meant was soldiers who were fighting, they become very close with each other, even though they're not from the same family. So it's almost the opposite. Like it's almost as though when I discovered this, the bond between myself and my family was severed. My identity was severed. It was cut. And I felt a little bit like those baby deer that are born and they're on wobbly legs and they can't find any footing. And I thought, gosh, I I couldn't imagine anything so traumatic, you know, much more traumatic than that. But over time, what I discovered was in the processing of feeling everything I was going through and being open to allowing it to happen, whatever it was, and just getting to the truth of whatever the truth is, you know, if it's bad truth, whatever it is, And coming on the other side after this writing, I felt a much stronger understanding of myself and of family that for me, it isn't that blood is thicker than water. You know, it's like my family became bigger. It was my adoptive family. Absolutely. It's this new woman in my life who's my sister, Martha. It's suddenly my friendships became so powerful because I realized that's family. For me, the animals that I, you know, have in my home, that's family too. So I think my understanding of family expanded and grew bigger and my place in it. Yeah, that that makes uh, 
Well, I don't want to say it makes sense because I, you know, it's, it's your, your understanding, but I relate to what you're saying. Um, the writing, the writing of it, usually we start off with something that we're trying to figure out about ourselves or the world or our connection to the world and ourselves. And uh, it seems so amazing when you're writing and you're in it and you're in the, I call it a conversation with yourself. Mm -hmm. When you're in a conversation with yourself, the things that, that come up, the parts of yourself that you give back to yourself by the discovery of what you're unearthing in your writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to add one more thing uh, in regards to what you're saying. It's this idea of identity. I never thought about it before this. I was like, this is who I am. This is how I am in the world. And you know, that whole idea with the monks in Tibet that make these beautiful mandalas and then they sweep them away when they're done. And you're like, oh my gosh. And the whole idea is not to hold on to things too tightly. I had no idea I was holding on to my identity so tightly. It just never occurred to me that when it was taken away, suddenly I would just kind of like be jello, you know, just kind of on the floor. And I thought to myself, it was a really great lesson for me to learn about acceptance and letting go. And that, you know, that that I think now the way I look at it, identity, identity being such a core, such a fundamental part of us, that it just reminded me a lot about letting go of almost everything, you know, not to hold on too tightly to anything because it's so painful if it's taken away, which doesn't mean you don't love it and you don't appreciate the things around you, but you just hold on to it a lot lighter in a lot lighter way. Yeah. I mean, I had that thought when I was hiking this morning, uh, I, I had the thought that you cannot love without loss. Like it's an impossibility because you will lose everything at some point. Mm -hmm. There's not one thing you will keep. <laughs> it's not, which is was the weirdest thought to, to imagine that everything you love, you're going to lose, like to know that. It's the flip side of the coin. As an animal advocate, I hear this a lot, or, you know, I hear, I can't get another dog because I lost my last one. It was so painful. And I'm like, oh, please, you know, I, I get it that it's hard, but are we just going to go around the world and around our life and not love? I mean, to me, love. I mean, love for me is is one of the most beautiful things possible in this world. And so even though the, the flip side is loss, I'll go for it. Yeah, well, I mean, you you. Uh, it all comes down to love in the end. I mean, not to go Paul McCartney, <laughs> the love you make <laughs> is equal to the love you take, but <laughs> it's true. And so let's talk about your other love of animals and, and advocacy for animals, because that was something I know you had sent me that was important to you. So how are you involved in the animal world? And you know, yeah. what? adoption is so funny, right? I mean, <laughs> Well, you know, that is, it's an interesting thing because I'll just start with a story that about 10 months after this all happened, you know, still processing and going through and, 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 you know, trying to move through and heal. 
and what happens, but I don't know if you heard here in Santa Fe or in Rowan, New Mexico, there was a situation where a woman had hoarded over a hundred dogs and they, it was a really bad situation. So uh, we, I ended up going with a bunch of rescuers and, and took the dogs while she was in jail, you know, that, that was part of the condition. And I took one of them home with me and Grace was really traumatized. She had been attacked by a mountain lion. So she still has those scars on the back of her. She was scared of everything. And I had to totally focus all of my attention. I knew because I work with animals so much. I knew how much attention she was going to need from me, how much of my time and energy. So for the next six months, I spent it on her rehabilitation. I focused everything on her. And when six months later, she, everybody says she's a different dog. And I realized and I'm a different person. I had let go of my story while I was trying to help her. And in the process, I healed a lot as well. So that is, um, so that's my recent story or not so recent now, but with Grace. And what I've, I've been an animal advocate for a very long time. The organization, I'm, I've, I've worked with the Santa Fe Animal Shelter. I've given uh, talks there. Also with Animal Protection New Mexico, I'm what they call an animal ambassador. So I um, I do a lot of advocacy with them. In fact, uh, a portion of my book proceeds for Junkyard Girl is going to Animal Protection New Mexico. So my focus is really to help um, enlighten people and educate people and help them hopefully um, just become inspired, you know, for all the earthlings here to become inspired to help animals live in a, you know, to be kinder, to be more respectful, to be more loving, to be more compassionate towards the other creatures we share our life with. So that that's my focus. And I write up until this book, I usually write books focused on animals. I wrote a book called Dog as My Doctor, Cat as My Nurse. And that one was focused on all the health and wellness that animals offer us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And I've written some gratitude journals that are focused uh, with our relationships with animals as well. So that, that's what I do. Very nice. And I saw that you were once a movie editor with Lucasfilms, a film editor, and you did that. You had a whole life around a different kind of creation and expectation and way of being in the world. And you left that to go on to become a healer with acupuncture and Chinese medicine. So the desire to heal others has like, once you made your split from whatever corporate job and, you know, probably had a great experience doing all that, but you went on to this path of like healing others, healing yourself, healing through animals, you know, it's all about helping and giving and advocacy and sharing and community, which is lovely. Yeah, absolutely. I love the movie business. I still love movies. I'm a big movie file, but I also burned out. It's a tough industry in Los Angeles. And because then I went from Lucasfilm to, to LA and it's, it's, and it never really like editing was never really where my heart was. It's how I fell into the movie business. And I, I did that for a while, but going in and becoming an acupuncturist and having my own wellness practice and sitting face to face with people. And it was, I, you know, whereas I was exhausted after editing on a full day on a movie, I'd go to my practice and help people and work with them. And I'd come out energized 
And I realized there's something that when you're helping somebody else, they're giving it back to you. There's something is happening energetically that you're getting, at least I was getting re-energized. It's like how I said I was helping Grace, but somehow it helped me. So I always think of this term. I always say service serves us because it's not just, you know, to others, it just comes right back at us. So yeah, I I um, really love connecting with other people, connecting with animals and helping however I can in the best way that I can. And I want to talk about that, but I won't, before we leave the film editing thing, I have <laughs> one question about it because I've always wondered, you know, the film editors to me feel like the people that really create the story because there's the script and then there's the acting and the lighting and the cinematography, all of that comes in. But to me, it seems like a film editor is deciding at what elements and at what moments to splice together, leave out, to bring together, to coalesce so that the feeling of it can become a whole. And I was always fascinated with um, all the decisions. If you've got hundreds of hours of footage mm -hmm. to pare it down to 122 minutes or whatever, I, I think that's such an amazing, interesting, nuanced, brilliant skill to have. It is. It is. I, I wouldn't say that I was a great editor because I didn't have the patience that requires that. But yeah. I worked with really like astounding editors where I saw exactly what you're describing. Uh, I remember, and these people just had this inherent. Yeah, how do you know? It's like this thing. Well, it's a magic. It's almost like magic. And then when I would be looking over their shoulder, watching what they were doing, and I'd see how this thing came to life. And also, it's not just how it came to life because it's not just the co cognitive thing that's happening, but it's how it hits you. It hits your heart and you know right. something has just happened. So it was almost like watching a, you know, um, a master you know, or somebody painting something in front of you that was coming to life. So I admire editors as much as you do. I, cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, um, but yeah, it requires a lot of patience, a lot of work and over and over and over and over again until he gets it right. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I always joke that when God was handing out patients, I didn't want to wait in line. <laughs> so I, I told somebody once, I said, do you think I'm impatient? They said, oh, no, darling, you have a marvelous sense of urgency. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to borrow that. You can borrow mine. I'm going to borrow yours. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's great. So tell me, what do you have coming up? I just want to make sure we don't miss anything there there was two questions first the title of your book junkyard girl a memoir of ancestry family secrets and second chances so junkyard girl what's the title oh you did have to ask me that didn't you jana of course all right curious <laughs> i just as a writer myself i just appreciate yes. the choices well, whoever uh reads junkyard girl will find out within the first three pages what that is but essentially my parents were hoarders. Okay. And it was a really, this is, this is the beginning of why it was very difficult for me growing up because I was the opposite of a hoarder. All I, I wanted to seek out was the sun, light, space. And I sort of felt trapped in this, in, in this life. And I was very ungrateful for a very long time. 
be, and then only to discover at the end what my mother had done for me. So it was just quite a journey from uh, just being feeling trapped and then suddenly realizing what was kind of laying amongst the junk in a sense. Yeah, that's interesting because there's always treasures. There are. There are. They're not necessarily physical. Yeah, there there are always treasures in that. Um, how long did it take you to write the book? About 18 months, give or take? I would say, well, I, I did it in different sections and I would take time off a little bit in between, but I did it. I started off my first draft with NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. I find that that's very helpful for me. And then I I, I set it aside for about a month. I would say in total, if I was really to look at it, it was a total of a year. And then there was a lot of, you know, editing of just making sure everything was correct. So a year of writing, maybe. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I always tell people that if they ever have any thoughts about these ideas that uh, follow them and plague them is a little too strong of a word, but these things that we can't shake about who we are or our stories that we have to fulfill. And we think about writing a book hundred percent. You have to show up for yourself and just be there. And, and that's the thing that it becomes is you showing up for yourself over and over and over again. And what you will get out of it will be nothing what you expect and everything you need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah. I, I think uh, one of the other things that I, that I think this writing process has taught me is I've listened to my inner voice a lot more when it's saying, go here, go there, don't, you know, just, I, I listen to that more and I feel it's easy to not listen to it because you're, you're kind of exposed in the world with all the things that are happening. But I, I really think that um, we all have that inner voice. Right. And it's it's a very good guide. And if we could hone that and listen to that more, especially in the writing process, very helpful. So what do you have coming up on April 22nd of this year that you would like to share and invite people to be part of or know about aside from buying your book, which will give everybody all the information, but what do you have coming up that you are excited about? Well, I'm super excited that on Saturday, April 22nd at one o'clock, I'm going to be in conversation at the Santa Fe Public Library, the main library on Washington. And I'm going to be in conversation with Karen Foss, who happens to be a six-time Emmy award-winning news anchor from St. Louis, who lives here in Santa Fe. And Karen used to have her own show face-to-face -face with Karen Foss. And, you know, she was an anchor for 30 years and she's Absolutely amazing because we did the same uh, presentation in Albuquerque and it went super well. So I'm excited. I hope people can come and it'll be a great, uh, believe me, it'll be a really great conversation. Also, I'm donating a percentage of my proceeds to Animal Protection New Mexico. And so I would love people to come and support that as well. And what else do you have coming up in the future that you can see to promote the book and spread the word and mm -hmm. adopting well, conferences or I could see. Uh, you yeah, I, because I'm, 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 I'm alone in my, uh, in my, you know, I don't have a team around me, so I have to do everything in chunks. I so, this, yeah, so this first year, it's mostly uh, bookstores and in conversations. So I'll be doing in September, I'll be at Books on the Bosque, which is in Albuquerque. 
I'm going to be doing actually something in May now um, at Las Soleras, which is a senior community center. I'm also going to be doing some talks um, at bookstores in LA and in the Bay Area and San Francisco. And once I get done with that, then I can move on to the bigger presentation. So, um, and I'm doing an awful lot of media, did KRQE recently. And um, so, so I'm, I'm quite busy. That's very exciting. And you should be proud of yourself and happy for yourself and grateful that you showed up for yourself to get through what I can only imagine would be, uh, I just picture the inside of a washing machine at full speed. It's true. But, you know, I want to say something too, because I know you focus on writing and teaching other people and, and encouraging them to do it. But one of the things that I was so surprised at was here I grew up with all the shame. I, my parents were hoarders. You know, I was, you know, there was, there was, if you read the book, you'll see that I just grew up with intense shame and I never wanted anybody to know anything about me or where I came from or what I was. So here I exposed everything. I was, this is my story. What can I tell you? And instead of people rejecting me or saying, oh, that's terrible, or I don't, people, connected in a way I never expected. It's true. They found, they found connection to their own families, to their own stories, to their own shame. To And I am so amazed and grateful for that because it truly made me feel like, wow, this is this is what it means. This is what humanity means on, on a wonderful level. You know, I agree a hundred percent because I always tell people who are afraid of, of putting it out there, I say, inevitably, there's going to be people that are not going to like it and they're going to tell you what you did wrong or they're going to tell you that grandma died on a Wednesday, not on a Thursday. <laughs> inevitably, I expect it. Inevitably, there's going to be people that like my story and relate to my story. I got everything I needed out of my story for myself through the writing. By the time I put the book out, I was okay with wherever and whatever came from it. And I was clear, 100% clear. And I imagine that, I don't know about you, but I feel a lot stronger. I feel a lot more resilient. So I feel like that severing that happened way back when, it got built into something much stronger. And I'm totally, I'm much more whole, even though I didn't realize I, I wasn't whole. But now I'm a, I feel like I'm at a different level in my existence because um, that came into play. And I wouldn't have thought that when it first happened, but I, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Yes. Well, I'm grateful that you reached out to me to share your story and I can't wait to read your book for sure. It's going to be on my list and I'm going to meet you so you can, we'll exchange signed copies in person. Oh, are you? That would be lovely. I would love to uh, connect uh, with you that way for sure. Yeah. So, Junkyard Girl, a memoir of ancestry, family secrets, and second chances. Where can people find you? In Santa Fe, I'm at the Collected Works. Um, I'll also be at the Santa Fe uh, Library, and people can buy, get it from me there. Also, Route 66, which is a vegan cafe on Lena Street, is carrying it. On Amazon, of course, online, Barnes and Noble, all the regular places. Do you have a website you want people to reach out if they? I would, especially animal lovers. Animalhumanhealth.com, animalhumanhealth.com. And the reason I'm excited about that is because I write a bi-monthly blog slash newsletter 
which is focused on celebrating the animal-human bond and how animals help us live healthier, happier, and more extraordinary lives. So um, people seem to find it pretty inspiring. So I hope people will sign up for that. Good. That's great. I will encourage everybody in an ongoing way to do so. And thank you for being you and being (laughs) honest and clear and connected and an inspiration for people to just be more human in their own experience and identity. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate being on the show and connecting with you. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story, or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Oh,